This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Jorge Oteropilos, Director of the Historic Preservation Program at Columbia University, and I'm joined here today by Professor Robert Hewison, who is visiting and teaching a master class in our program on John Ruskin in the 19th century. Professor Hewison uh, teaches at Lancaster University and has held various teaching positions over the years, among them uh, Slate Professor of Art at Oxford University and is one of the world's experts on Ruskin. So Robert, we're very pleased that you're here with us. Thank you. Well, it's, it's great. Really is an honor to be invited to teach at uh, Columbia because it has such a reputation. And uh, I've never taught in an American university before, so this is just a wonderful experience. Well, and I'm, I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, that's terrific. Well, you're teaching a class that, um, that goes, it's a deep dive into Ruskin. And um, you're, it's, it's, a, it's a class that's taking the students two weeks, and you started the first lecture by having them draw. Now, that's quite unusual. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I thought that uh, as this is you know, part of an architecture school, then you know, architects and people associated with architecture ought to be reminded that uh, pencil and paper is where a lot of architecture at least used to start before computers came in. And, of course, the other... The other thing was to surprise them, but there was a real reason, and that is that the particular uh, drawing exercise I set was the first drawing exercise set by Ruskin when he himself taught drawing at the London Working Men's College in the 1850s. And it's a, it seems a very simple exercise. It's just drawing a white ball, but it has to be drawn in a certain way. And I think... Uh, that had quite a surprising effect on the students, who actually then did a whole lot of very, very interesting drawings. I once did this exercise with Royal Academicians in London, and uh, my only regret is I never picked up the pieces of paper afterwards. (laughs) That would have been quite valuable now. Um, I think for a lot of people it's striking to realise that Ruskin could draw really well. Yes, you see, the really interesting thing about Ruskin is that, of course, he's one of the great thinkers and writers of the 19th century, uh, certainly in England, but he's the only English public intellectual, if you like, who could draw as well as he could write. So although, uh, I'm quite frankly, Ruskin's language, biblical-based, beautiful, oratoned, magical stuff actually nowadays is a bit of a barrier for students and uh, I'm sorry about that Uh, but you know you have to immerse yourself in it uh, as I have done in the language for some 50 years but his drawings give you an immediate access to the way his mind is working and of course he himself was so uh, shaped by his drawing and in fact he thought in a visual manner. And when I give a public lecture here uh, at Columbia, uh, the title of my talk is The Argument of the Eye, because what I shall be talking about is the way in which Ruskin actually manipulated ideas in a visual way, even though uh, his thoughts emerge in books. And he himself never thought of himself 
as an artist, but he left us this evidence of his visual thought and the way that, that he, he researched, in a sense, by copying, by drawing, and also, interestingly enough, by, by uh, photographing, by using the, the daguerreotype, um, which is very interesting. And so we have all this wonderful visual evidence, which I hope breaks that kind of historical barrier between thinking of Ruskin as this bearded sage, which is what he ended up as, and, and the way I approach him, which is always saying, look, Ruskin's first book was called Modern Painters. Mm. And the modernity was, in fact, the modernity of Turner and Pre-Raphaelites and so on. And I've always tried to present Ruskin to people in terms of being, of getting people to think of him as a contemporary critic dealing with contemporary issues. And indeed, many of the issues that he talks about are actually more contemporary, I would argue, in the 21st century than they were in, in, in the mid-19th. Do you think he drew... Uh, as a way to observe more closely, or what what was his purpose in drawing? Well, his purpose in drawing was was in seeking the truth, um, uh, and the first order of truth is be able, is to be able to see the world and and say what you see, and not to have your perception clouded or or, or obscured or framed by conventional perceptions. And this is the great argument he made for the truth of Turner. And he, he wasn't saying that Turner renders absolutely naturalistic uh, uh, visions of the world, but that Turner, through his own perpetual process of, of sketching, you know, Turner drew the whole time, but from that, he was then able to create a vision uh, which, as it were, penetrated the, the naturalistic surface, but actually got through to some higher truth. And of course, uh, uh, for Ruskin, that truth was the truth of nature as the creation of God. And of all sorts of beauty. And of beauty, yes, of beauty. And, Beauty and truth, and truth and beauty, etc. Uh, these are the things that, that Ruskin was concerned about. And he, re, he, he says somewhere, you know, hundreds can speak for, for, for people who can write, but, you know, only a few can see, can see the truth. Did he finish his, uh, a lot of his drawings? I mean, he, I, I've seen a lot of his sketches and sort of studies but most painters then take those studies and make some sort of final piece that synthesizes all those sketches, as you were talking about Turner, and made me think of that. Did he, did he do that? Did... Well, no, because, you see, the interesting thing is he didn't see himself as an artist in the sense of an artist being defined as a professional person who produced finished works of art. I mean, he, I don't think he ever sold a drawing in his life, and he very, very rarely exhibited. No, drawing for him was uh, part of his research method. It was also a, a huge pleasure to him. I mean, he began, like, like uh, uh, many people, he, he was taught to draw as a young gentleman, as, because all young gentlemen were taught to draw. If you went into the British Army, you were taught to draw, because you had to learn to observe and, and express the landscape, this being in pre-photographic days. But, of course, at the same time, he was... 
um, taught to draw in a rather conventional, in a particular conventional way, in a uh, elegant uh, late 18th, early 19th century picturesque way. And actually, I think the way he became a critic, uh, certainly this is the way I argue it, is, is that when he began to see, by looking at Turner, who was, after all, a friend, it wasn't just, you know, Turner, someone, uh, Turner was not just a friend, he was actually being patronised by Ruskin's father. So he was, he could see Turner at work, he could see the progress from uh, a, a sketch and a notebook to uh, a sample drawing to interest a client and then the finished drawing. And of course Ruskin commissioned Turner to do drawings and so on. And it's through that process that Ruskin saw that the conventional picturesque vision not only was false, but also actually had a social meaning because he points out that the kind of, you know, a typical picturesque highland a landscape would have a couple of uh, uh, people in, in interesting shaggy dress sitting there fishing. And he says, well, it looks lovely, but you have to realize these two are starving. And that, I think, uh, shows that even at the beginning of his career, he was also thinking not just about rendering the natural world, but also thinking about the people who lived in it and the conditions under which they worked. And the way he, he got to that point, of course, was through the study of architecture. Um, it's so interesting that today, when we're talking so much about social justice and the relationship between architecture and social justice, there, is, there seems to be so much interest in, in Ruskin, who was, from the get-go, trying to link these two things together. And how did, how did conservation or preservation or his interest in heritage help to make that connection or, or, or kept him from making that? Was it helpful? Well, I mean, I, how, does it, how does preservation fit into that, tri, that dyad between... Well, of course, the first, the first point is, is he, he's, he says that, that architecture is the most, and I'm quoting him, political art, which means that it's a social art form. And therefore, when he comes to looking at buildings, he expects buildings to speak the truth. Um, that is to say about how they have been built and what they are trying to say. And he, he, he was of the tradition which... Uh, again, it's his Bible training in a sense. He, he said, St. Mark's is like a Bible and you must read a building, you must read a building for what it's telling you. It's a very Protestant approach to understanding uh, the world of architecture. And of course, in the mid-19th century, the kind of great buildings that, um, like St. Mark's in Venice, uh, like Salisbury Cathedral, like the great cathedrals of France, they were facing two threats. One was simple decay, because they were all falling down, but the second threat was restoration. And he makes in the, his book, The Seven Lamps of Architecture, which is very interesting, uh, uh, very moralizing approach to architecture, he links two threats in one phrase. He talks about the restorer or the revolutionist. And of course, by the restorer, he meant people like possibly Violet Le Duc and people like that, who were thought they were 
restoring buildings, but they weren't because they were putting, turning buildings into simulacra of what they thought a, a building would look like at some imagined special time. So, uh, and at the same time, the revolutionists were, if you like, modernity, the people, for instance, who were prepared to uh, drive uh, the railway line uh, at Newcastle in the north of England, slap bang through Newcastle Castle. If you go to this day, you suddenly see what, what terrible damage you know, the modern world was doing. So while Ruskin um, was very, very concerned to conserve or preserve buildings, he actually said, restoration is a lie. And this is, he was so radical. He said, in fact, you cannot restore a building, he said, which seems, you know, took everybody back a great deal. But what he meant was that you have to, if you are going to restore a building and you must look after buildings, you have to try and be truthful to their original construction. At one point, he even said that if, if a stone falls out and you put one back, on it, you write the fact that this stone has been put back, that it is not the original stone. And of course, when in the 1870s, uh, St. Mark's, Venice, was um, in danger, the, the, the west facade, which everybody knows, you know, the pigeons and the flagpoles and the crowds and all that of the Campanile. That facade, which is palimpsest it's like a vast historical tapestry it's a mixture of so many different styles and so on it's it's covered in bits of loot which the venetians stole from istanbul and so on anyway an architect had come, was about to completely change the facade to make it neat and regular and proper and actually ruskin who was staying in venice at the time with the aid of, uh, of an Italian, uh, Alvise Zorzi, they got a campaign going in Venice which actually stopped the restoration of St. Mark's according to these new, uh, the new fashion. And indeed, already part of the restoration had been the removal of part of the church. Um, and actually, Ruskin got it put back. He persuaded, they were persuaded to put it back uh, ironically, it was a, it's a Renaissance element, and Ruskin, of course, was keen on the Byzantine and the Gothic. So actually, St. Mark's you see today is a kind of restoration of a restoration. So it, it's a challenge, and he, is, he obviously is the most radical in terms of, of resisting restoration. But it was this argument over St. Mark's which led the, the, the great Italian uh, theoretician Boito to begin to elaborate principles of conservation which have gradually been adopted worldwide and they actually go back to Ruskin. Ruskin has been a fascination of yours for for decades since you were a graduate uh, student. Uh, that's right, much. that's right. How, ha how has this interest been sustained over the years? What, what in Ruskin is, is the thing that you keep coming back to? Well... Uh, it's because, well, of course, it's 
when I started, uh, when I became interested in Ruskin, which was in 1968, um, it was because quite innocently I'd been asked to write a television program about Ruskin, uh, who'd been sued by the artist Whistler for libel. This is a famous uh, case in the 19th century. And I went into this, uh, into this, um, this project not knowing a great deal about either, which of course is how most television people do things. I was working in television at the time. And I thought, oh, Ruskin, terrible Victorian fuddy-duddy, Whistler, great modernist wit, etc. But I got so interested in Ruskin that I actually changed my life and I went back to Oxford and I then did my, did my higher research on Ruskin. And of course, in 1969-70, most people said, you're studying Ruskin, you're completely mad. No one's interested in, in Ruskin. But actually, there was something which tied completely to those 60s days in that Ruskin was an, uh, an expert of, in interdisciplinarity long before indisciplinary, it, I can't even say it, <laughs> had been invented. Because, you know, to study Ruskin, you have to understand literature, you have to understand art history. You've also got to be prepared to think about geology, you've got to think about botany, and you've got to think about economics and political economy and all those things. Because as Ruskin's mind expanded away just from writing about art and architecture, the next step was to write about society, political economy, and so on. So he ends up as this great sage. He founds his own utopian society, the Guild of St. George, which is still working very effectively, actually, today. It owns land and it's trying to uh, um, uh, run the land according to sound ecological uh, uh, principles and so on. I mean, um, Ruskin also was a great environmentalist. He wrote a famous lecture called The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, yeah, which, which, which actually was a great warning against industrial pollution. And at the same time, he was concerned about the ordinary working man and the way the working man was being turned into a machine Ruskin actually, although he was a huge influence on, on British socialism, he was a Tory. He was a very, very conservative. He believed in hierarchy and, and all those things. But he believed that everybody was created to some extent, which actually takes us back to that drawing exercise, because that drawing exercise was for working men who wanted to improve themselves. But Ruskin said, I'm not here to make you into artists. I'm here to make you into being better people, better working men, through discovering the creativity within yourself so that you can be a more fulfilled and self-actualizing person. And I think that's a value which pertains to this day. This idea of interdisciplinarity that you brought up, um, I can see it in your own work and in your own career. I mean, you have, you have spanned so many areas and so many disciplines in your own career uh, from you know, writing you know, the, really one of the landmark books in, in preservation, the uh, cult, 
cultural heritage industry, you know, the very... I mean, the book called, uh, the, book called uh, the Heritage Industry. The Heritage Industry. That's right. Written yes. at a time of decline. Yes. Um, and also writing theater, writing theater criticism. And um, in your own work, there is this question, I think, um, about what is culture? Uh, it seems that you approach it from many different angles. Um, well, that's the Ruskinian in me, you see, because I think of Ruskin, although he didn't call himself a cultural historian, that is essentially, I think, what he was, because what he said was the, the, for uh, art to be any good, the society that produces it has to be good and has to have, and you can, you know, the health of a nation can be measured by its art. And, of course, that, you, know, you can cut that all sorts of ways, but it's, to me, it is the relationship between culture in its broadest sense, not just high art, painting, opera, all those things, everything, everything we do, and, of course, architecture is very much part of that, and the way we treat old buildings mm -hmm. is very much part of that, which is why I coined the phrase the heritage industry, because it seemed to me that we were commodifying this need for memory we were trying to turn it into dollars basically and I, I still think that's happening you know in a sense um so uh when i uh, was writing about contemporary things it's partially of course to get away from ruskin because <laughs> one can become a little geeky and obsessive <laughs> so i've always tried to alternate what i do uh, with uh, by uh, Ruskin and then writing on something else. And of course the other point about it is that um, I didn't become an academic until quite late in life and rather than when I decided what I really wanted to do was write cultural history there are two ways you can do it. You can become an academic in which case you're far too busy to actually write books as I'm sure you know Jorge. Uh, <laughs> uh, or you can survive uh, by writing journalism. So I, that's how I became a third degree, which was great because it meant that I could work all day and then go to work because I could do my work in the evenings. The interesting thing about that was that it kept me in touch with what was going on in contemporary society in a way that I think if one, how, however much I respect academic life, it does put you at a certain distance, whereas I've always had to spend, you know, as, I've always kind of ridden two horses. One is being an academic and a bore on Ruskin, and the other is actually trying to be engaged. I mean, while I've been here in New York, I've, I've been down to MoMA to look at the, um, the art from the countries that have been uh, 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 put on the kind of exclusion list by your current president and so on. And I'll be writing a piece about that for Apollo magazine. And so on. So, um, you know, I've, I think it keeps you alive to have more than just an academic interest. Cultural history is, is such, so interesting in the, in the way that it intersects with preservation because in the end we're talking about buildings but we're really talking about the, the culture around them and the, and the society around exactly. it. And uh, where do you see... Where do you see heritage uh, today? You said now that you, you felt it was being commodified still and that um, uh, certainly Ruskin was uh, an opponent 
of any uh, pecuniary uh, purposes for uh, heritage. Although, so he, interestingly enough, he was the first person to suggest that you should charge people to go to Venice. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but I think he did that because he wanted to control the crowds. <laughs> and, of course, he was horrified by what happened to Venice. You know, and yeah, part I mean, his time already. Yes, and it was partially his fault because he'd written this wonderful book, The Stones of Venice, which yes. is the subject, the basic subject that I'm dealing with in the course of this this uh, uh, masterclass that I'm doing at the moment. Venice is such a great example of that because it has been completely commodified and the life of it. I mean, very few people live in Venice. Those that do have a really hard time just struggling with the hordes of tourists that that come through. But but you and I are also tourists. Of and course. you and I go to Venice. When we go to Venice, are we not tourists? Uh, are we absolutely. Not? I sometimes feel guilty. I mean, I go there, obviously I go there because Venice, Ruskin and Venice is my particular interest, my particular, within the, the great mass of things there are to, to say and study uh, uh, in, in, in the field of Ruskin studies. I mean, you know, I could be studying mountains and so on, but I don't. I study Venice, which is a bit obvious. But uh, I feel guilty when I go there. About? About contributing to the, <laughs> in a sense, it's, 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 it's the great paradox, you know, that, that you want to go there, you want to see it, but by seeing it, you're changing it. Right. You're in a way destroying the very thing that you, that you treasure. Yeah. And I mean, surely you in, in your work on memory and so on, you know, you know how, what a delicate thing it is we're dealing with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to your lecture tonight, which we're about to head into. And it was so nice of you to take a moment uh, before the lecture to to talk about your work and, uh, and your class here. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.